Hello and welcome to the Chris Ham Podcast, episode 51. I know it's been about two and a half weeks since the last episode. Uh, I've said before my target during COVID has been every 10 to 14 days or so on average, but it is the dog days of summer and July is a busy month for me between my wedding anniversary with my wife Jen and our older daughter Eloise's birthday. It always tends to be filled up with a lot of different activities and, and certainly brain space. So um, we also have, you know, just a lot of other miscellaneous things going on, which will be revealed in subsequent shows. But just very excited to be back to be on solo today. Uh, love a good interview show. I'm grateful for every guest that has come on. But sometimes this feels like a great way to connect with you guys as my audience. So really excited to be here. Um, in the last episode, I want to start by saying that. With Jen, my wife, uh, you know, she, when she impersonated my introduction, um, <laughs> welcome to the Chris Ham Podcast, buckle up, you know, it was with a heavy accent. And, you know, I'm wondering, um, is my New York accent more intense these days? You know, now that I'm a suburban guy, surrounded more in the company of people who have lived here for longer than New York City, which is you know, full of more transplants and in the company of a lot of 20 something year olds for fresh out of college for me when I lived there for the 12 and a half or so years I lived there. Um, I'm wondering if, you know, the accent neutralized between college and when I first moved to New York City um, versus now when I've been kind of immersed in suburban life again. I know I had an accent going to college back in 1999. So uh, when you hear me, what are you hearing? Are you hearing New York or what? So just thought about this the other day. Um, anyway, just coming off a great stretch. Uh, as I mentioned, Eloise, our older daughter, uh, she turned four last Wednesday. I can't believe where the hell does the time go. And, um, you know, given the middle of the week, coupled with COVID, you know, she literally had four different birthday celebrations this year. You know, first and foremost is with our immediate family, Eloise, her baby sister, Emmy, me, Jen, and Bruno, our dog. Um, then we had, uh, you know, cake one night with my in-laws. Then it was, uh, you know, brunch, a day, and, and dinner and cake with my parents. And then finally, last Saturday, Jen and I threw an outdoor, socially distant party for about a half dozen of Eloise's friends and their, and their parents. Now, we did this outside in our yard in, in the 90-degree July northeast heat and humidity. And, uh, you know, Jen really did a great job spearheading this thing. It was, it was My Little Pony themed. It's always exciting to see what theme the birthday parties are every year. And having now two kids, it's going to be uh, double the fun. But, um, you know, we set up a sprinkler outside, uh, had a shaded table. Um, we have a, a playground. And, you know, the, the sprinklers were courtesy of my in-laws, the playground, uh, courtesy of my parents. And then we had a pinata. Which was, which was, uh, I don't know if it was Jen's idea or Eloise's idea, but it was, it was just an awesome touch. And you know, before the party, Jen and I were scrambling to get everything together, and uh, you know, she stayed home with our girls the final hour before to decorate and do the goodie bags, while I, with you know, a feverish pace, picked up some last-minute grocery items. Now I felt like I was on the amazing race. Now these items included white claws. Now the now white claws are those flavored seltzer. Uh, those flavored spiked seltzers, if you will. And yes, I drew a parallel to Zima several episodes ago because back in the, the late 90s, early 2000s, when 
the option to, to, to consume beverages with with uh, without a fake ID in high school and early college were, were pretty limited. People mocked Zima incessantly as not being cool. And White Claws are pretty much Zima, but White Claws through marketing are a part of a trend with competitors to be this like acceptable drink to consume um, across age groups, genders, at least you know the thirty-something-year-olds and forty-something-year-olds that I associate with most with. Or drinking that, not even thinking about it, and um, especially you know for day drinking or outdoor drinking. Now, I, I even had, had this last night, and also a competitor spike seltzer at a friend's backyard. Two dudes just you know we had we had a, a bourbon drink and then and then a white claw, and um, so it is a thing. But anyway, I digress. So I went to the grocery store here in Westchester. We have a, a chain store that was originated here. There's probably about I don't know ten to twelve different locations across the county. Uh, called the Chico. Now I was just wearing just a kind of a casual T-shirt, gym shorts, uh, you know, a mesh hat, and a and a white COVID mask. And relax, this isn't me bitching about microaggressions again. But I load my groceries on the check the checkout belt frantically to get back for the start of the party, and I get carded. And this is not unusual at the Chico because they tend to card a lot of people. Um, but the cashier, she was. Um, a very sweet Latino woman, probably in her late 50s, early 60s. And she questioned it casually. And I tried to stay pleasant. And she said, you know, I'll let you pass because you're the same age as my daughter. Now, I was ready to pull out credit cards and and any kind of identification that I needed in order to, you know, social media profiles, if it got larger than that. But, you know, I told her as it dawned on me that Eloise, whose birthday we were celebrating that day, was at, at, as four years old, was closer to 21 than I was. In fact, I, I, you know, I, I noted recently that this date in 1999, you know, a lot of times you go to a public place, you know, it says this date in 1999, you're allowed to drink for people that can't do math in their head, I guess. But the moral of the story is, you know, I'm old. You know, this date in 1999, I was already, you know, a month away from going to college. So, um, you know, I'm old. And but I ask anybody out there who knows me um, and I'm going to ask honestly and figuratively look at you in the face. You know, I know that I hide some of my receding um, hair by, by having a buzzed head um, and have no gray in my hairline or facial hair yet, but do I look anywhere near 21? You know, maybe I can pass for early to mid-30s, maybe, but 21, I mean, that feels like a big stretch to me. Um, I'm grateful this is even something that I can talk about, but it's also simultaneously ridiculous. Anyway, great show for you today. Uh, check in about Coven. Uh, about COVID. Uh, it's still here, uh, but I haven't talked about it in great detail in a few shows, so I'm going to cover it a little bit today. Uh, I then have my regular Terrible Trump Transmission segment, and today I introduce a new segment called McEnany's Misspeakings, and end with some solid totes, takes of all temperatures. Um, but I want to start with a story in the news decades ago that highlights a massive concept that is tangential to racism that is alive and well almost 40 years later. So buckle up, episode 51, here we go. So I wanna go back to June of 1982. So I was just about nine months old, and no, I don't remember anything then, nor is it my parents telling me a story of when I was a baby, but it was June 20th, to be specific, and early, um, I guess it was 
early summer, late, I guess late spring, but the very cusp of spring and summer night in Detroit, Michigan. Now at the time, Detroit was a powder keg of racial animosity towards Asian Americans. Specifically, as Japanese imported automobiles penetrated the U.S. car market. You know, this also hastened the decline of Ford, GM, and Chrysler, known as the Big Three. Now, resentful workers laid the blame for recent layoffs at the time on Japanese competition. Now, Vincent Chin, a 27-year-old Chinese-born immigrant, grew up in a suburb of Detroit in the 1960s and became an industrial draftsman who worked at an automotive supplier. Now, he was engaged and set to be married eight days later on June 28th, 1982. Now, Chin went out with a few buddies to a strip club for his bachelor party. Now, while there, he encountered 42-year-old Ronald Ebens and his stepson, Michael Nitz. Now, Ebens was a Chrysler plant supervisor, and Nitz was a recently laid-off auto worker. So you kind of guess where this is going. Now, according to interviews, Ebens said to his stripper that had just danced at Chin's table, quote, don't pay attention to those little fuckers. They wouldn't know a good dancer if they'd seen one. And then according to eyewitnesses, um, Ebens got up and said, again, quote, it's because of you little motherfuckers that we are out of work. Now, Chin, once again, was Chinese, not Japanese. And he was an engineer and not taking factory jobs. Now, Chin being offended by the racism and more than a few drinks deep, I can't blame him. He punched Ebens in the face. Now, his stepson, Nitz, Ebens' stepson, came to his defense. A brawl ensued between the two parties, and both Ebens and Nitz were sprawled on the floor when the fight had ended. Now, the fight, the fight escalated as Nitz shoved Chin in defense of his stepfather, and then Chin countered. At the end of the scuffle, as I mentioned, um, Ebens and Nitz were, were, were hurt. They were on the floor with Nitz suffering a cut on his head from a thrown chair. Now, Chin and his friends left the room while a bouncer led Ebens and Nitz to the restroom to clean up their wounds. Now, while they were there, Robert Sarosky, one of Chin's friends, came back inside to use the restroom. Now, he apologized for the group stating that Chin had a few drinks because of his bachelor party. Um, and Ebens and Nitz had also been drinking that night, although not at the club, which apparently did not serve alcohol. Now, when Ebens and Nitz left the club, Chin and his friends were still waiting outside for Sarosky, who had used the restroom. Chin challenged Ebens and Nitz to continue the fight in the parking lot, at which point Ebens retrieved a baseball bat from Nitz's car and chased Chin and another Asian American friend out of the parking lot. Now, Chin ran to a, a McDonald's down the street. Now, it didn't end here, unfortunately. And obviously, there's accountability on both sides at this point. However, Ebens and Nitz, with the anger brewing inside of them, searched the neighborhood for 20 to 30 minutes. They even went as far to pay another man 20 bucks to help look for Chin before finding him at a McDonald's restaurant. Now, Chin tried to escape, but was grabbed and held by Nitz while Ebens repeatedly 
bludgeoned Chin with a baseball bat until Chin's head was literally cracked open. Now, a, a cop who witnessed the beating said Ebens was swinging the bat like he was swinging for, quote, a home run. So wait a second. A cop witnessed this beating. Heaven forbid he step in. When rushed to a local hospital, Henry Ford Hospital, ironically enough, he was unconscious and died after four days in a coma on June 23rd, 1982, five days before he was supposed to get married. Now, Ebens was arrested for the initial assault, and after Chin's death, Ronald Ebens and Michael Nitz were charged with second-degree murder. So that was the incident. Let's talk about the outcome. Now, at the time, government officials, politicians, and several prominent law organizations generally dismissed theories of civil rights aspects of the Vincent Chin beating. Now, the Civil Rights Act was 14 years prior, but this this incident in 1982 predated a lot of addendums to hate crime legislation. Now, Ebens and Nitz were convicted in a county court for manslaughter by Wayne County Circuit Judge Charles Kaufman after a plea bargain brought the charges down from second-degree murder. Now, they ended up serving no jail time for bashing in the brains of a guy where an altercation stemmed from racist sentiment and anger and a racially derisive comment. Now, these pieces of garbage were given three years probation, fined $3,000 in order to pay $780 in court costs. Now, in response to the protests from American Citizens for Justice, Kaufman said in an interview, quote, these weren't the kind of men you sent to jail. You don't make the punishment fit the crime. You make the punishment fit the criminal, end quote. So let's unpack that for a second, right? Because that sort of sentiment still exists today. Now, these weren't the, 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 the quote, the kind of men that you sent to jail. Let me decode that for you. Now, a person with a law degree and legal power in this country essentially said white men who aren't Charles Manson or Jeffrey Dahmer, don't deserve to go to jail. You make the punishment fit the criminal? Well, isn't that a nice and neat way to perpetuate stereotypes and bias rather than use data and apply it to the justice system? Now, this whole incident is younger than me. I was born the year before, but this wasn't that long ago. However, one shouldn't be surprised if you look at just the criminal justice system today in 2020. Now, if you don't hear that story and think of two words, white privilege, then you have your head so far up your ass, you can smell your breath from the other direction. You know, white privilege doesn't mean you default to a life of prosperity free of struggle. It means that you have advantages economically, socially, physically, emotionally, and criminal justice specific, among many others, because your skin is white and you are part of the majority group. Now, I find the biggest difference in 2020 between firm right Republicans versus Democrats, independents, and some Republican moderates, what what I find the biggest difference is, aside from any political issue, is the inability for through and through Republicans to understand, acknowledge, and accept white privilege. And aside from the societal wrongs associated with the white male top-heavy power structure, I witness micro white privilege, what feels like sometimes daily. And I talked about the microaggressions, but, and again, a massive disclaimer, most of my friends are white and nine out of 10 of the guys I talk to the most are white. 
However, when I get cut off without an apology or somebody walks across the street slowly or I hold the door open without a thank you, it's usually a white male. And I think the messaging in this country, subtle or direct, is too strong for this not to be the case. So none of us should be surprised by this. Now, I will say that I find that the other side of the spectrum, black women, exhibit some of this, but for the opposite societal driver. Now, they are an incredibly marginalized um, group being both black and women and at the bottom of the relative power chain. Now, this is not meant to promote dangerous stereotyping. So take this with a grain of salt. But a segment of black women seem like they don't just don't give a fuck. And I wish you would honk the horn at me taking a, a, my time to, to jaywalk across the street. And frankly, and maybe this offsets my generalization a smidge, but I don't blame them. But anyway, that was the incident of Vincent Chin. May he rest in peace. And I wanted to just share that story. And with that, the John Lewis tribute next. I want to spend a few minutes giving tribute to John Lewis, who passed away after a six-month battle of pancreatic cancer, which is an absolutely devastating disease, and killed my uncle four years ago in less than two months post-diagnosis. Now, if you run in a woke circle, you probably saw many tributes, tributes on Instagram and Facebook when John Lewis passed. Now, if you don't know his whole backstory, don't feel guilty. I didn't until I researched him a bit. Now, John Lewis passed just over a week ago, and he was most recently a congressman in Georgia's 5th District, which is an urban district in southwest Atlanta, Georgia. Now, he was the last living leader and speaker from the 1963 March on Washington. Lewis was one of the leaders in the 1965 Selma marches to advocate for voting rights. He was a nonviolent protester in the 1960s and much like today had to endure tremendous violence from oppressors and law enforcement. Now Lewis was once beaten within inches of his life when nonviolent protesting and there were items that were used on him throughout his protesting life such as bats, stones, chains and metal pipes. Now, he also sat in a whites-only restaurant one time, and the owner locked him in and fumigated it intentionally to the point of nearly killing him. Now, he sat, he did many more things on top of the um, civil rights activism that he did five decades ago, six decades ago. Now, he sat in on the House floor to protest gun violence. He supported gay marriage in the early 2000s. And he was a, just in general a courageous man who seemed to go into politics for many of the right reasons. And his primary goal from his 20s through 80 years old for six decades was to make a difference in the lives of people, particularly those disenfranchised and marginalized. So I just wanted to quickly say, rest in peace, John Lewis, dead at 80 years old. Some COVID thoughts next. All 
Okay, so let's check in on COVID. So about four months in, it doesn't feel like we are anywhere near life as we knew it. Meaning I can't envision commuting into New York City, going to a sporting event, a crowded bar, the gym, or even being at a, at a wedding with, with a couple hundred people. Now, before the grim statistics, I want to talk about the effect on me personally and sort of how me and my family are choosing to, na- to navigate life until something changes for the better or heaven forbid for the worse. I feel like we are in this kind of weird gray period for the last month and change, and that could end up being the largest phase of the COVID era. Now, the unknown, I'm terrified, don't leave the house and wear a mask outside phase was short-lived. On the other side, the life is completely back to normal outside of a rare COVID flare-up before COVID is really just like gone. That's going to be pretty short-lived too, I think, in comparison. But we are likely going to be in this weird gray zone for a while that will be worse in the fall and winter, whether we have a second wave or not. Now, this is a gray zone where you go to stores in a mask. Maybe you dine in restaurants rarely, but will dine outdoors. When you see people in small groups, you don't hug, shake hands or talk close. Where you wear a mask, but you don't really keep it on for every interaction with every person. Sports are played in empty stadiums with cardboard cutouts. Baseball started the, the other day here. Uh, you know, I watched the Yankee game. It was one of the weirdest things ever, watching a game with, with no fans. It almost looked like it was one of those situations where it was just rain delays throughout the entire delay, throughout the entire day, and people just said fucking and left, and like it's like empty stadiums because the weather was so unstable and the game was so choppy. Like that's what that's what watching baseball has felt like. Now, life looks kind of normal to some degree. But when, you know, where, as I mentioned, you are doing things like going out here and there, seeing small chunks of friends with precautions. But when the days start shortening in the coming months and the weather, it starts getting dark at six o'clock, then five o'clock, then 4.30, and it's too cold to dine outside or walk consistently, it's going to get a bit depressing. Now, I think there is some hope out there. I, I, I heard recently that there's, there's uh, vaccine trials going on with some success, very little side effects, but who knows how long that takes to get properly tested and rolled out and who's going to be actually willing to jump, jump, on, jump in and, and take the vaccine. I mean, we can all be in this exact same position in July of 2021, 12 months from now. Now, I hope I'm wrong, but I have a hard time visualizing a return to normal before the second or third quarter of 2021. On the other hand, who the hell knows? You know, in mid-April, did we really think that we would be gathering with friends in yards or eating at restaurants, looking like your family dentist wearing a mask in and out of everywhere? So it's, it's hard to predict this COVID thing. I mean, it's really hard to look even beyond like 30 days out. But I'm, I'm remaining hopeful as much as I am discouraged in a lot, a lot of aspects, which I'll get to. Now, let's take a snapshot where we are in the U.S. In the U.S., right now, Our cases are 4.1 million plus, and our deaths are approaching 151,000. And if you want visual proof on how much our country, led by our doofus president, has botched COVID, look at deaths per million residents. I posted the, the chart on my Twitter and social media, but I'll describe it to you. Now, on the x axis, 
is time from March 1st until now. And on the y-axis is simply deaths per million res residents. If you look at this chart, since March 1st, the US and Europe grow at a similar rate with Europe hitting their plateau first and the US. And then Canada, which started later than the US as a, as a much lower peak. And then what you see as time goes, and, and meanwhile, Japan basically was a flat line, barely above zero since the inception of the chart. And then what you see over time is the U.S. just spikes back up again as we get, you know, as you look into like the summer months. We suck. Outside of the Northeast right now, COVID, you know, as far as COVID goes and in a few states here and there, we suck. And it all starts with wearing a mask where the president finally is asking people to wear one because he sees his re-election hopes getting flushed down the fucking toilet. Now, I hope... We all remember that it took him until late July and cases spiraling out of control to walk back his freedom rhetoric and push for masks, which competent local leadership has done for months, by the way. Thank you, Governor Cuomo. But I have no problem with mask wearing and never have. You know, in fact, I was one of the earliest people wearing it going to the grocery stores back in March when, believe it or not, most weren't and only were wearing gloves and sanitizing like crazy before we knew a lot about this thing. Now, masks to me are a collective insurance policy for public health as it relates to COVID. They're not foolproof, but they sure as hell help. Now, many years ago, I got into an argument with a relative about the importance of an alarm system, even in an affluent, quote, safe neighborhood. Now, my parents have had an alarm system for over 25 years since they renovated their house. And we have an alarm system. You know, it's likely that you will have, you know, it's, it, and here's what I'll say with an alarm system. Is it likely that you will have masked bandits break into a house with a home invasion and kill or maim the occupants? Of course not. But don't be naive to horrific crime happening even in pristine neighborhoods. Google Cheshire, Connecticut home invasion, which happened last, you know, a couple, uh, about 13 years ago, if you aren't familiar. Now, an alarm system is an insurance policy on your safety while you're at home above even personal property when you're on vacation. You know, it is a deterrent if, you, if it's known that you have an alarm system and it decreases the likelihood of any sort of horrific crime. Now, if you don't believe in alarm systems, then you're the, you, know, you theoretically should avoid buying car insurance or forget wearing a seatbelt whenever you get in a car. You know, mask is a form of insurance for covid as are other safety precautions. So there's, there's a lot of similarities between a mask, an alarm system, insurance. It's all just insurance. It doesn't matter what the percentages are. Of, and, and the thing is, the COVID deniers and minimizers can tell me or you until the cows come home how low the death rate is. But you don't take precautions because of the high percentage you will have a mild case. You take precautions so you don't have to have a chronic illness that happens to affect your immune system in a devastating way, in a painful way, potentially a fatal way. And further, that can be unknown and is debilitating for weeks or months in a moderate case. So you don't have to go to the ICU or die alone on a ventilator without any relatives around you. You know, why is this so hard for people to see? It's pure arrogance and a flaw of the human condition to think, quote, not me, or to think this is a hoax. You know, a mask, a seatbelt, an alarm system at the end of the day are worth it for your safety in life.
terrible Trump transmissions and McEnany misspeakings next. So let's talk about our narcissistic, self-absorbed joke of a president. And I use that term president loosely. Now, two and, a, two and a half weeks or so in between episodes, and this material on him is almost too much to even sift through to extract one or two ridiculous things that he said. Now, the COVID briefings are back. And let's talk about Trump and COVID. Now, Donald Trump and, and the, this COVID botching is something for the ages. It's going to be something in the history books, on Wikipedia pages, whatever the equivalent of is, is decades from now. Now, he closed off China in the, back in the winter. Ooh, great, Trump. You know, the disease was coming into the States from China via Europe. You know, that's like fixing the obvious roof leak in your house, but neglecting the other two dozen holes, filling your home with water, and ruining all your shit. He has incessantly denied the severity of this public health crisis from the beginning. So why do we think he isn't going to do it now in the face of spiking cases all over the country? You know, finally, he has said it will get worse before it get better. It will get better. Thanks, Donnie. Four million cases later. You know, it's an inconvenient thing for him during an election year. But, you know, look at how he's handled this problem. You know, it, it was inconvenient for me to and, and my wife to miss my, my company holiday party when our daughter gets sick or she got sick. Happened this year. You know, my wife and I don't leave her home throwing up seven times in 10 or 12 hours. We cancel our plans and we deal with, we roll up our sleeves as parents. Now the worst states with COVID are red states with red governors. Texas with Greg Abbott, Florida with Ron DeSantis, Arizona with Doug Ducey. In fact, eight out of the, the, the highest spiking t- 10 states have Republican governors. If the man they admire and support is setting the tone he sets, why should we be at all surprised? You know, the Trump strategy, minimize and deny a problem and hope it goes away, that's something that's just followed across other people that are extensions of his leadership. And then he has his minions trying to discredit people smarter and more qualified than, than they are. And all this treatment of Fauci by him and Kaylee, Kaylee Pinocchio knows McEnany, it's just disgusting and ridiculous and you know, now this whole Sinclair network putting out a video that Fauci created the coronavirus. I mean, it's, it's absurd. It's disgusting. And it's classic defense mechanism paradigm of deny, discredit, minimize. Then, you know, then what should scare you all of a sudden uh, now is so, like data. If all of a sudden data gets better, the Trump administration is going to manipulate it, hospital data because they're getting it ahead of the CDC. And his supporters will scream from the mountaintops that COVID is a hoax. A hoax? I mean, look at it. Look at the worldwide spread. I mean, get your ass, you know, get your head out of your ass, Trumpers. More testing, more cases. If I inspect less rooms in a prospective house, there will be less problems. But then I might miss the hazardous electrical outlet that might set my house on fire. I mean, the rhetoric is absolutely mind-numbing. Trump sat down with Fox's Chris Wallace a few days ago, and boy, oh boy, does it have a bunch of humiliating gems. So first, let's take a look at some of his protest response from from this past week. Um, Now, after sending nebulous law enforcement, much like the Hunger Games peacekeepers to Portland, Oregon, in a move that has spiked up antagonism among protesters and been an accelerant 
rather than a diffuser to crime. You know, he did the same thing to Chicago and Albuquerque. And, and who does he blame? Democratic leadership and the radical left. Antifa, blah, 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 blah. You know, Trump's straw man and therefore his sheep supporters who treat Antifa like it's fucking ISIS. Antifa doesn't have a leader. You know, a soundbite by Trump. And got to respect the call out by, by Fox News' is Wallace. Trump talks about Democrats running cities. Take a listen. Liberal Democrats have been running cities in this country for decades. Poorly. Why is it so bad right now? Uh, they've run them poorly. It was always bad, but now it's gotten totally out of control. And it's really because they wanted to fund the police. And Biden wants to fund, to fund no, the police. He does not. Look, he signed a charter with Bernie Sanders. It Redo says nothing about defunding the oh, police. Oh, really? It says abolish. It says abolish. Let's go. All right. Well, give, you, me, you, give me the charter, please. All right. Now, that soundbite was an absolute joke. It's an absolute joke. I mean, cities in general, urban centers, for those of you who aren't aware, tend to be more progressive places across the entire country. So you're likely to have a Democrat running the place. It's an absolutely absurd absurd narrative. Now, let's segue to him defending Confederate monuments and names of military bases. Take a listen. I don't care what the military says. I do. I'm, I'm supposed to make the decision. Fort Bragg is a big deal. We won two world wars. Nobody even knows General Bragg. We won two world wars. Go to that community where Fort Bragg is in a great state. I love that state. Go to, go to the community. Say, how do you like the idea of renaming Fort Bragg? And then what are we going to name it? You're going to name it after the Reverend Al Sharpton? What are you going to name it, Chris? Tell me what you're going to name it. I mean, listen to that blatant dog whistle pandering to white supremacists. By the way, if you do some research on General Bragg, he had a reputation for blaming others. You know, I've called, I, you know, I've talked a, a lot about high-level character defects at Trump in which there is no dearth. But if you want to talk about one for people that he is absolutely the king of, that is a bit more nuanced. It's always somebody else's fault. He drops a glass, blame the waiter. He sharts in his pants, Blame the food he ate and who prepared it. He trips and falls in Mar-a-Lago, holding a railing. Blame the architect or the designer. His fat ass falls climbing up a hill out of a bunker on a golf course. Blame the golf course. Every fucking thing is somebody else's fault and there's no consistency to it. It's whatever fits propping up his narcissistic persona. Such a piece of garbage. And I didn't even get into him bragging about a cognitive test that tests the mental deterioration of people like he got a 1600 on his SATs. So that's Trump. Now it's time to highlight the lying, gaslighting, manipulative Kaylee McEnany. Now I have friends who are teachers and administrators, not just former classmates or acquaintances, but people I actually break bread with and enjoy a cocktail or two with. Now, I'm a parent of kids pre-elementary school age, but it's easy to fast forward their lives to entering grade school and emotionally reacting to this rhetoric. And here's what she said in, re- in reaction to schools, in response to schools opening. She said, quote, the science should not stand in the way of this. This is absolutely infuriating. Infuriating. 
you know, I have to avoid calling her female-specific insults because there's an element of sexism behind that, and I have to check my male privilege. Privilege, But I want to. You know, I don't know. Maybe it's not different from calling a dude a, a dick or a prick or a douche, but I, I, I'm still going to avoid it. She just sucks at life, though, and she's really just renovating her seat in hell, in my opinion, along with the rest of the cavalcade of Trump cabinet members and supporters. And yes... Enough defending these these fucking people anymore. Can we be done? You know, what is the tipping point? What does he have to do? What do they have to condone? It's unbelievable. So that's the McEnany misspeaking, which will be a regular segment every episode going forward. Totes next, including a bonus one. Tote number one. AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is a badass. And if you are threatened by her, it says more about you than her. Now, over the last few days, AOC delivered a speech on the congressional floor after fellow Congressman Ted Yoho of Florida called her disgusting and a bitch in a confrontation that they had in the hallway. Now, AOC isn't perfect in everything she suggests, and you know, often doesn't have vetted or, or highly executed plans behind everything that she suggests. But I love what she stands for, who she fights for, and the fact that she is not interested in keeping the power distribution tilted toward rich white men. I feel passionately as a girl dad and a husband of a feminist. You know, it's truly remarkable how much she triggers the misogynistic majority male. It's classic sexism. And Yoho's antics and his disgusting language epitomize this threatened male response to AOC. Now, being a confident man married to a a, a strong, confident woman and feeling compassion toward the marginalized in this country, even it, it erodes into my ultimate wealth, I admire the hell out of AOC. I admire that she doesn't bow down to the men and the most defaulted privileged members of society. So bravo, AOC. Bravo. Tote number two. Naysayers and yes men or yes women are both equally dangerous. In life, moderation is often the the most optimal path, I find. And when looking at the extremes of naysayers and yes people, this is an arena of life that rings true. Negativity is an absolute cancer. You know, people that are negative suck. They bring down your mood. They subconsciously put a ceiling on goals and high achievement. It's usually their own shit and insecurity that, that drive this. You, know, you hear the term wet blanket. It's a negative person. Now, naysayers in your life should be few and far between. Now, conversely, yes people are no good either. Those are the people who don't challenge anything you say or do. Aren't, are inauthentic people. And that causes you to live comfortably in an echo chamber and not evolve past your own limitations. So the two extremes, both bad, naysayers and yes people are both toxic. Tote number three. Sweet as a slang word is lame. Sweet, dude. It sounds jovial and cute on the surface, but I loathe the slang word sweet. I think it's incredibly cheesy and trite. You know, let's go through some, some very good news scenarios and imagine a dialogue like, like these and using the words, using sweet. 
Boston an employee. Hey, you're getting a 25% raise this year. Sweet. Mom and dad, Brianna said yes to marrying me. Sweet, Billy. Sweet as a slang word is corny. You might as well say bodacious. Tote number four. You know, wearing masks around in Western society is still something hard to get used to. You know, seeing even now four plus months in. But one thing that it has taught me is how much language exchange relies on reading lips and, and full on face cues. But one other thought I had is that wearing masks really helps people that may have attractive or pretty eyes but have funny looking noses or mouths. Now, in particular, if you have yellow teeth, bad breath, Michael Strahan field goal gap teeth, COVID mask wearing is actually probably a good thing for you. Tote number five. Now, in less than 60 episodes, I've complained about old drivers and young people in general plenty. And I got to credit my wife, Jen, on this because she's talked about old drivers uh, and and pointed this out even before I, I probably became regularly annoyed by them out here in the burbs. But is it ageist? Maybe. But I don't know because this particular criticism is limited to drivers and limited to drivers younger than 25 and older than 70. Although, you know, I can maybe argue 65 or 60, but, but definitely o- over 70. Old drivers and young drivers both suck for different reasons. That's my tote. And maybe the theme today is be aware of extremes. Young drivers are all about revving their engines, texting while driving, driving 10 to 20 miles per hour over the speed limit on residential streets and blasting music, making blind turns while giggling to friends. Meanwhile, on the other side of the, co- of the spectrum, old drivers ride the brake, swerve around lanes, take turns at two miles an hour, ride on the highway 15 miles below the speed limit, and struggle at times to stick their head above the steering wheel. And it's even worse with these COVID masks on, which for some reason they, they still don't take off when they're driving. What do old and, and young people have in common here? They are a threat to those of us in the middle 35 to 40 year age bracket. So between, you know, ages 25 and 65. So old drivers and young drivers both suck. Tote number six, bonus tote. Being around four years old is a very injury prone age. This might be stating the obvious. There are probably statistics on this, but anecdotally so far, it seems it's the riskiest physical age. And I used to think it was like younger than this when they were like, you know, early on, like 18 months or so, like when, when they were like kind of segueing between babies and toddlers. And but I'm wrong, you know, I, and I think it comes down to four year olds being physically able to do a lot, but not knowing reasonable physical limitations. You know, in the past month or two, Eloise has gotten her finger in a, stuck in a car door, luckily a soft close, fallen off her bed on her head directly when she was tired, thankfully onto a soft rug and no concussion, but it was terrifying. She fell down the bottom four stairs into a wall. Again, no concussion. Um, while not fully locking her into the car seat, which this is not her fault, uh, attached to the second row um, while putting somebody in the third row of our car, she went flying forward into the driver's seat while I started driving. Uh, and my wife flew to the back from the passenger seat and I jumped out of the car at a red light to help her and panicked for a few seconds, forgetting how to fold the seat back. Again, fortunately, she was okay. But... You know, I used to think there was a different peak to, to, to uh, being accident prone, as I mentioned, 
because babies turn into toddlers and they can start walking around clumsily. But no, it's it's went for when the clumsiness goes away, but extreme fatigue from holding out, holding out on sleep causes a droopy body with an unwavering zest for life and a lack of awareness of reasonable physical limitations. So dangerous combination overall. It's not just my lovely daughter. Another friend had his daughter get her finger cut behind a door latch and yours truly also had his car, his hand slammed in a car door right around the same age. So be very careful parents who have kids in the three to six range. So very prone injury range for our little ones. Thanks for listening to the Chris Ham podcast. Please follow me on Twitter at Chris N Ham. Your support and feedback is incredibly valuable as I grow this podcast. So please tell me what you like, what you don't like, and feel free to suggest topic ideas. Take it easy, friends. Be well.